Welcome back. I'm Gary Parr, and you are listening to Fiber Talk, the twice-weekly podcast for needlework artists. Our artist this week, Kathy Andrews, The Unbroken Thread. Kathy, welcome. Thank you very much, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, back for, is this the fourth time? I think it is. Yep, the fourth time. I Yay. think it is. Yep. Yep. Um, all right. This show, sponsored by the Embroiders Guild of America, and so we have some bullet points listed here. First one, join the EGA. Just, you know, join them. It's it's worth it uh, on, on several fronts. Um, and even if you're not a member, you can go to EGAUSA.org, and there's a whole bunch of stuff you can see uh, that you don't have to be a member, and then that will entice you to join so you get more stuff. Um, one of the things, if you're a member, is the virtual lectures. Those things have been a huge success and coming up in March, March 20, uh, uh, registration opens March 25, April 13 is the lecture, Curiously Wrought, A Closer Look at Needleworked Buttons, and Gina Barrett is the presenter. Uh, I'm signing up for that one. I got I to gotta learn about this. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah. They're five bucks, and if you use the code FiberTalk5, FiberTalk and the number five, you can get one free, and, and they're recorded. So if you look back and say, hey, I missed this one, uh, I want to listen to it. You can pay five bucks and get it, or uh, I'm sure that the Fiber Talk Five is a one-time deal. But um, uh, so sign up at egausa.org for these virtual lectures. They are every one that I've participated in has just been really good. Uh, and uh, like uh, the one on the 13th, I can't uh, participate because uh, we have a, a grandson obligation, but it's recorded. So there we go. Um, I'll get it. And then uh, the EGA National Seminar is uh, Preserving Needle Art, and that's in Atlanta, August 14 to 18. Tennessee Valley Region is, is sponsoring this year's uh, seminar, and registration is open. And then we also have your class. we got to learn about this. Trevelon, tre is it Trevelon? Nope, Trevelyan, but ah, you were close. Trevelyan, Needlebook. Good. So registration closes March 6th, so that's coming up. So tell about that class that you have. Yeah, that the Little Trevelyan's Needlework takes a Tudor Rose motif from the miscellany of Thomas Trevelyan, which is a mouthful. But a miscellany is simply a collection of information and drawings and patterns and anything that anybody wanted to keep that they learned about, knew about, and didn't want to forget. Sort of like we keep our photographs on our phone and maybe we have notes and we maybe have emails we keep well they didn't have electronics in 1608 so of course that didn't work so they did it all on paper and this man collected just vast amounts of knowledge and you can look up the Trevelyan miscellany uh, at the Folger library and you can see it all online for free but part of his collection includes embroidery patterns, specifically of interest, embroidery patterns for caps, gentlemen's nightcaps. These are like silk or cotton stocking caps, but they're not stretchy because they're made of silk or cotton. And they were embroidered all over, and men would wear them after they came home at night. They would put these on to keep their heads warm, and they were beautiful. And that's the first thing I ever stitched out of the Trevelyan miscellany was one of these nightcaps. I made a miniature one. And after that, I've used his patterns, his designs, and adapted them for contemporary projects for embroidery students that I teach through the EGA. And they're really an accessible way to do period embroidery with at least in my case without having to learn lots of very very difficult stitches or use very expensive materials and the little needle book is all worked can all be worked in dmc cotton it's absolutely beautiful it's a little red and white tudor rose and then some green leaves and then off to the side there's a beautiful blue flower which i have to be honest i'm not really sure what it is but it's sort of a periwinkle blue and the little needle book it's about four by five and the class includes, obviously, the pattern. You have to buy your own fabric and your own threads, and then you need to purchase some uh, very tiny print. Cotton would work the best, like a little tiny check or something for the lining of the needlebook, and then either felt or flannel for the pages. And so you get, you get your supply list, you get your pattern, and then there are instructions, lessons over a period of weeks, as well as videos, live vi videos that I made as I was uh, 
constructing it to teach people how to do it. So it's sort of like an it's an online class, but it also has the video component so you can watch them over and over again. And then there's a discussion forum on the EGA website, which actually is already active. And I had one uh, student ask me if she could stitch it in this particular design in Appleton wool. And I said, well, you could. I would suggest that you enlarge the pattern a little because it's quite a small motif. I think the wool would be too thick. But if you enlarge it by 50%, I think it would work. So that's another way for us to communicate me with my students and students with each other. So it's a really nice online class that doesn't happen at a specific time on a specific day. You can go in and access the lessons and the videos when you want. And the fee is very reasonable. So I would really suggest that people, you know, check that out. And mine isn't the only one. There are other ones offered throughout the year. So, yeah, there's classes going on all the time. Yeah, it's that's it's, right. it's impressive how many they have, yes. Yeah, and the woman who runs it, who happens is in charge, who happens to be a member of my local chapter, she's really on it. I really like her. And I should put a plug in that I'm also teaching in Atlanta, and I'm teaching two fabulous classes. So if people want to look at that, I would love to see you in Atlanta. And the hotel in Atlanta, oh my goodness, it's so wonderful. It's the Hilton, and it's the home of one of only two Trader Vic's restaurants, which is a particular interest to me because Trader Vic's invented the Mai Tai. <laughs> yeah, that left the speechless, didn't it? <laughs> there we go. All right, so go to egausa.org and sign up. Uh, join, join, just join, sign up, and uh, registration for Kathy's class closes March 6th. So time running out on that, so get on that right away. And then... Um, uh, consider going to the National Seminar in Atlanta. One of my favorite cities, by the way. Um, oh, good. Yeah, I've so, never been there. Yeah. Been there a so lot of I'm times. So I'm excited. Yeah, conventions, you know, business conventions. Been there a ton of times. Yep. <clears throat> know a uh, salesman there who knows all of the um, the good barbecue places. Yeah. Ooh, I'll have to get some top tips. Yeah, I can, uh, I can give you a, a short list of... Um, it, it, nothing, you know, not a, the good ones aren't fancy. They're just little holes in the wall. And yeah, yeah, yeah I'm not surprised. Yeah, that's where the good stuff's at. All right, online classes. You had someone ask you, "Doesn't anyone teach live classes anymore?" Which I thought was, yeah, that's a valid question these days. Yep, it sure is. Um, and the answer is yes. People do teach live classes. I'm teaching lots of live classes this year. I'm teaching in Colorado. I'm doing a class up in Fargo, North Dakota at the Historical Society Museum and Museum, teaching out in New York in the fall, and of course regional seminars. But people, I don't want to say struggle, people are reticent sometimes to go to a live class, and there's a number of reasons for that. Um, one, of course, was COVID, and still can be COVID. COVID hit people hard at the National Seminar last year. Um, and when you're all together in an enclosed space for days at a time, that's a good place for germs to travel through the air. So a lot of people don't really feel like taking that risk. I wish that wasn't true, but it's a fact of life now. Another reason that live classes are sometimes difficult and maybe not as popular as they used to be, is the cost of getting there, the cost of housing, and the cost of food. The class itself might not be very expensive, but all of the associated costs put it pretty quickly out of the range of a lot of us. It's just flat-out expensive to go to a national or even regional seminar. Uh, you need to save up for that. Um well, I it hasn't that, but but that's also been a real issue for guilds. Yes, is to have teachers come in live. For so many guilds, they they don't first they don't have the number of members to sign up to pay to foot the cost, but to have someone come in and and hotel and airfare and everything is it it's just too expensive. Yeah, and it, and if you can do online, it just opens doors all over the place to uh, learn from from other teachers. That's right. That's right. And, you know, if you're a teacher, you certainly don't want to pay for your own travel and your own housing because then you're going to come out in the red usually, right. not in the black. <laughs> but, and, but I think that 
the one of the best things I've ever heard about people doing and the way that you can get the component of live teaching that's so important to so many of us, which is the camaraderie among stitchers. A, a class that's online does not have to be a class where you sit alone in your house, in your living room or wherever you stitch, you alone looking at a screen with a bunch of people on Zoom. There is no reason that you can't all get together, or even five of you, get together in one room, and you can, if you have the kind of TV that you can screen share, so whatever's on your computer, you can share to your TV, so you're, you're on a larger screen, all of you can look at a big screen, or you can all gather around the computer and look at that, and then stitch and talk, you could put you know, the sound on mute, so you're not disturbing the others on the call, or the Zoom class, and then you have that camaraderie. You could even conceivably do it as a as a guild. You're all in the same room together. The class is projected onto a screen. And as long as everyone in the guild has paid for the class, then, you know, that's kosher. That's legal. You can do that. And it's not okay for one person to pay for the class and invite 20 people over to watch. That's not cool. But people yeah, don't let's, tend to... let's underscore that. Yeah. yeah. That is but not... I, at all that's not okay but i don't think i don't think people do that i i think that's very unusual i think needle workers are are very careful about that i really do um but the one of the advantages of having an online class and actually something that came out of the pandemic which is ties in with this is the use of document cameras or now our cell phones, which we can now project with some new technology that's come into play. And that gives the student a close-up view of exactly what the teacher is doing. And I know you remember, Gary, and I certainly remember the days of, okay, five of you come forward and gather around behind me and bend over and look <laughs> over my shoulder. And good luck seeing what I'm doing because my head's in the way. <laughs> yep. And it was just, you know, if you were lucky, you were in a class that was small enough that your teacher could demonstrate for two or three people at, at a time. If you weren't lucky, you had a class of 25, which, of course, is more economically viable for a small EGA chapter, for example, because the more people, the more you spread out the cost. But then you really couldn't see what was going on very well. Well, now that we have these we have document cameras and we can use our iPhones or our Android phones or whatever to project the, and a video, a live video image of what we're doing either onto a computer screen or a big screen using a projector in a large room. Everybody can see exactly what's going on. And a lot of us teachers are also at the same time making videos prior to teaching the class. So we might demonstrate it live but then we might have a video that we can play over and over and over to show the same technique multiple times. Because if you're demonstrating something live on a sample, you can only stitch that leaf once. Because if you have to demonstrate it again, you got to take all the stitching out and start over. But if you have a video, you can run it over and over. And it takes many of us, me included, multiple times of seeing something before we're confident. So in that respect, I think an online class can be an absolutely fabulous learning experience. I think that what people miss about live classes might be the contact with the teacher, but I honestly think it's the camaraderie of having all the other stitchers around. And that's something that if people get creative, they can figure out how to do that. Don't you think that's true? Well, yeah, and I, I've learned of uh, several people who are already doing that where, you know, we're all taking this class or let's all sign up for this class. And then let's meet on say Thursday night and we'll fire up the uh, video, meet in person, you know, meet at a library or somebody's home and, or move around, whatever. And, and then we're going to work on this project. And then you, you get that, uh, look at the video, but then you also have help from different levels of experience and you make progress on on a project, and that's so you can right. you can have that face to face camaraderie without obviously without the teacher, 
But then uh, all these online classes have a way to communicate with the teacher, email or group discussion or something. And, uh, yeah, you, you, so you can get that, that fellowship of Stitcher's uh, experience without having to travel and, uh, and and like you said, the ability to keep replaying. You know, I didn't quite get that. Can we do it again? Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, that's really helpful to me. I do think that one of the things that gives online classes a bad name is when the instructor and I, I have no specific examples of this. I have just heard people say, well, this online class wasn't so great because the instructor didn't have a very good quality camera. We couldn't see what was going on. They weren't very well prepared. Well, that happens in a live class too. So I think to blame a bad class on the technology is sometimes not fair. Now, granted, the embroidery teachers, many of us, had a pretty steep learning curve when it came to to learning yeah, about I'll the tech, yeah, to learning about the technology. And it was, you know, there was a a lot of discussion in the National Embroidery Teachers Association at the beginning of the pandemic about what's the best document camera, what's the best projector, what do you do about a screen, how do you deliver safely instruction to students in COVID during COVID, and our teachers really were concerned because we were losing the way that we usually did it, which was demonstrate it live with a few people gathered around. And we didn't have this. Maybe we had the ability to use the technology, but maybe we didn't know exactly what the right machinery was, what the right devices were. And our, our teachers really pulled together to help one another on that. And now I'm very confident that most teachers feel pretty comfortable with that and most students it is very rare to get on a zoom call and have somebody now of any sort any group zoom have a member not understand how to use zoom to some degree they may have different levels of understanding but i am stunned at how quickly the population of stitchers has adapted to this new technology and i think it's only going to get better yeah yeah, well, for two for two years, didn't have a choice. That's so. right. But, you know, I mean, um, embroiderers, at least the ones that I teach, I would say they're all easily over 40. Rarely do I have someone who's 25 in a class or 30. Um, and so you have a population of people for whom this kind of technology was new. Yeah. And it, that was that was a challenge for everybody. And I I am constantly amazed. We have we have a woman in my chapter who just turned ninety seven, and she's as savvy on Zoom as any of us. Well, that's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. No, it's um, uh, th- there's so many benefits to online classes that I at times you could make the argument they they outweigh the live classes because the ability to uh, include people who can't travel homebound, uh, or young people who have kids just simply can't get away and are not going to spend money for a weekend away when that could be used for a family vacation. Uh, yet we can, you know, we can include young people. There's so many benefits and yeah. And and you guys as teachers have gotten so much more comfortable, uh, with online classes that, that even some of the shortcomings early on of not teaching live, I think have probably gone away. Or you, yes. found, you found ways to be just as effective. Yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah. Another thing I think with online classes, I think this is a, a an opportunity that people haven't considered. Very often, people wait for their local chapter or some other organization to offer an online class. There is absolutely nothing in the world that prevents any embroiderer from saying to eight or nine other friends who embroider, Let's the 10 of us see if we can get teacher X to give us a class. And you write to the teacher and you say, there are 10 of us. We want to learn this technique or we want to do this project. How much would you charge to teach the 10 of us? A teacher is going to probably come back with an amount of money for an online class that I'll bet is affordable. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be organized by another organization as long as you have a contract and you know you're going to have to uphold that contract 
then you can there's no reason you can't do that right so it, you know you can you can choose wouldn't that be cool you know you and and eight or nine other people want to learn a project from me that i'm not teaching anywhere and you say gee we'd like to learn that we're going to pool our money together will kathy teach it for that amount of money probably so you might be surprised <laughs> yeah. so yeah, it That's really opens fact. a lot of doors that uh, allow people to advance their needlework, no question. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I I don't want live classes and seminars to stop because they're really, really fun. But I also don't want needlework to become an exclusive hobby where you can only learn if you can afford to fly or drive somewhere and pay a lot of money for a hotel room. Yeah. And they're almost always in big cities because of the transport. And that means that hotel rooms are expensive and that puts it out of the reach of a lot of people. And that's rotten. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, they just excluded. They yeah. <laughs> and they have no choice in the matter. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. But, but there is, you know, it, EGA national seminar and then the, the truckload of regional seminars that EGA has every year, you know, there's still a lot of, of positive, that comes out of that because it isn't just going for a class. It's going for an experience. That's and, right. Uh, there's a lot of that. And, you know, look into those regional seminars too, because invariably they're within three or four hours of, of your home. And, That's right. And uh, regionals yeah. are really fun because they're a little smaller. Yeah. A little, they're a little more manageable sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, online classes, um, I, I think, well, I think for a lot of people, are uh, uh, not just needleworkers, but any hobby or anything have opened doors that just weren't there before. And yep. uh, there's there's a lot of positive to it. Yeah. And um, and there was I, I was talking to someone recently who was uh, exploring a new job and the job involves some travel. Yeah. And, and the question was, you know, how much travel do I have to do? And the response was, and th this is interesting. And it falls in line with my paying job experiences. You really travel if you want to, but in general, people don't even really want you to come visit anymore. You know, they just soon do it online because of the the time consumption. And huh. and uh, and so this person, you know, okay, good because I don't have to travel as much. And now for me, before the pandemic, I was I was traveling. Two, I probably average twice a month. Oh, now, gosh. now, now I'm traveling twice a year. Because, oh, that's a lot easier. Well, yeah, it, it changes the game because for for me, I was you know, I would travel, and invariably the the week I would travel, I'd also have to go back to my room after dinner and work till midnight on oh, magazines. Gosh. You know, because yeah. you got to keep the train moving, and yeah. Uh, and yeah, and and all that goes away, and I don't feel like I've lost out on anything. Uh, you know, no. I, I watch these things online and learn from them and go back. Like if I'm, if I'm doing a, a, a writing a piece on something that was said in a, in a presentation, it's recorded. I go back and, you know, and, and get it again. Uh, yeah. there are just so many pluses and, um, uh, yeah, use, use your travel time for vacation with the family. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Yep. So. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, and it's still shaking out. Still shaking out. We're uh, still learning. Um, oh, and uh, when it comes to overhead cameras, Apple for for people who have Apple phones, the app is Shoot. It's called Shoot. S H O O T. Okay. And you you put that app in it. When I got it, it was free. Who knows what it is now? I've used that app for a long time. <laughs> But even so, what it does is it uh, it turns your phone into an overhead or a camera that you can aim at anything that stays on. Ah, yeah, that's the tricky bit, huh? Right. Right. So, so like when on our live shows, our stitch hour shows, when I show my stitching uh, on the rare occasions that I do, because there's so many other things going on at the time, but I just put it on a uh, a holder on a tripod. And use this shoot app, and then just forget about it, and it stays there. Huh. And uh, so it's called like Shoot Pro Webcam, something like that. Yeah, it's just yeah, shoot. Yeah, I'm looking at it now, just so I know. That's interesting because yep, that's the one. I uh, used Michael Forrest. I used, yeah, 
Okay. I used an IPVO document camera for a while, which I liked, but it had a lot of trouble focusing on the stitching mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. when you when you put the needle through, you know, you're stitching live, it moves the fabric ever so slightly. It has automatic focus. So it would be continually trying to get in focus. So my videos were unclear. Oh. They not as clear as I wanted. So I ended up buying what's called a canvas lamp, which is a ring with a magnetic, like a MagSafe magnet that you put your iPhone on with the camera facing downward. And then there's a ring light in the camera. Right. So it lights up your area. And then what I do, believe it or not, is I just create a Zoom call to myself. So nobody else is on the call. And I just record that to my computer and then go back and edit that out, uh, edit that into bits when I make my videos and then I do a voiceover. Mm -hmm. But that, that can't, that holder is to me because it has um, the arm will extend. It's like those old desk lamps that you would clamp yeah. on the side of your desk and they go, they go up and down and back and forth. It has been a game changer for me that, and you, I can also do it live, but it sounds like this app you're suggesting would help because once you connect, sometimes you can't then manipulate your phone, right? Once right. you're connected. Okay, so I'm going to look into that. Thanks for the top tip, man. Hey, no problem. Yeah. You're no, it's awesome. Been, uh, it, it's an excellent little app, and it it works. It just You just turn it on, and it just stays there, and you, you literally forget about it. Um, hmm. The only advice I would offer is if you're going to use it, take uh, whatever cover uh, case you have on your phone, take that off. Because okay. with your phone generating images uh, on a consistent, you know, consistently like that, it's going to get warm. So, uh, so take, the, take the cover off, take the case off so that the heat can dissipate better. Uh, I've okay. never had it get too hot. Uh, and I, I've had it on for an hour and a half uh, constant. But uh, I always take that uh, that case off and let the phone have free access to the air. But uh, other huh. than that, it's been a reliable app for me. It just works That's every time. Great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to samplers. Okay. I'll talk What's about samplers. that for samplers. a sudden shift, of, a sudden shift in topic? As was, you know. That was a, that was a segue outstanding really outstanding yeah right segue. not yeah. <laughs> as you know i collect samplers and believe it or not don't fall off your chair gary i'm actually currently stitching a sampler oh my god really and I, yeah mostly i can get the needle through the hole in the right place but not always <laughs> i don't know why counted work is so hard for me but i'm getting better at it um but uh there's a couple of things i wanted to talk about and when you were talking about on this isn't such a dramatic segue as you a shift as you thought i have applied to do a research grant well no that's not right i've applied to do a research course at cambridge university yes in england la to do and if i get accepted i'm going to be researching the inclusion and development of text in samplers from 1650 to 1750, because at the beginning there was no text when they were spot samplers, and then text came in, including names and dates, and then alphabets and sayings and blah, 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 and why did it shift? That's my sort of my research question. And a good part of that course will be delivered online to me. I will not be flying to Cambridge frequently. I am not a billionaire. <laughs> and one of the reasons that I got interested in that is I belong to a group called the Sampler Guild out of the United Kingdom, and we have weekly Zoom meetings. And um, the woman who is one of the women, but she's basically the leader of the group, her name is Linda Hayden, and she did an absolutely fascinating article with Ruth Taylor and uh, Jacob DeGroff about a motive called the Solomon's Porch. And this is interesting to me, as are the 
is the, as is the investigation about alphabets and lettering, because most people approach samplers from the genealogical perspective, which is perfectly valid. People want to know about the little girl who stitched the sampler. Who were her parents? Did she have brothers and sisters? Where was she born? Did she get married? Did she have children? What did her husband do? What did she do? Who was her teacher? All of those things are of great interest to sampler stitchers, and I think that's a valid interest. However, my interest is more in the content of the sampler. For example, why did they suddenly start adding their names? Why did they suddenly start putting alphabets on? Did that mean they could read or not read? Were they learning to read or not learning to read, just making ABCs to mark household linen? Why did they use these particular flowers as a border? Were they popular? Did they grow in their garden? Did their teacher make them do it? And one of the motives that Linda and her group, Linda and Ruth and Jacob, noticed as they were studying samplers was a little tiny house or a little tiny building. Sometimes it's big, but more often it's smaller, that is sometimes um, mislabeled as a dovecote or some other little building. And in actual fact, when they started studying it very carefully, they discovered that they were what's called a Solomon's Porch. And I didn't know anything about Solomon's Porches. It wasn't part of my religious upbringing. It's a uh, part of Freemasonry, which I certainly didn't know. And they have a brilliant article about Solomon's Porch on the website. The sam- It's just called The Sampler Guild. I think it's .co.uk with many examples that talk about how they noticed, started to notice all these little Solomon's porches everywhere, how they were being described by people who were looking at the samplers as various things. They, they had multiple names for something that, in fact, was were all Solomon's porches. And they talk about how, no, it's not a, dis, it's not a dove cut where you put doves. But, yeah, it could be that, but here's what a dove cut looks like. And then they go in to talk about how the Solomon's porch is part of the Masonic literature. I don't want to say ritual because I don't really know anything about that. And their research is ongoing. But the reason I'm so interested in this is I'm interested in the motifs on samplers. I'm interested in why did they go in and out of fashion? How are they a reflection of the culture? And I'm curious, do you think, Gary, other people would be interested in that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, to me that's that's the meat of samplers. You know, it, the the little girls give you, in my mind, the, the little girls in their history give you a personal attachment to the sampler as you're stitching it. And you, you know, okay, this was done by this little girl. She lived here. She grew up here. I can look it up on a map. Okay, that's all interesting if you're stitching it. But if you do multiple samplers, to me, the real meat is where do these motifs come from? How do they move through uh, space, city to city, country to country? What do they mean? What's behind them? Does are there colors? Do the colors have something to say with it? Do the variations have something to say about where they're stitched or who taught them? To me, that's the that's the meat of samplers. Is if you do multiple, if you just do one and it's a little girl and you know and you have a story to tell when you finish it, but if you do a number of them and that one keeps showing up, that Jacob's porch or Solomon's porch keeps showing up, you know, at some point your mind's got to say, why is this here all the time? Yeah. Who started this? What does it mean? It's got to mean something or it wouldn't show up all the time. Yeah, exactly. And I just, I find that fascinating. And this article, I mean, it's interesting about the Solomon's porch, but it set my mind off on this tangent of why do these specific motifs last over time and some of them do have very deep meaning others don't they might just be fashionable but that's also important because i think that what is stitched on a sampler is a reflection of the culture the little in which the little girl lives and to me that's the most interesting thing because samplers are very identifiable by period 
which has because they shift they're not the same from 1750 to 1950 and a sampler made in like 1830 to 1850 you can just about identify that without even looking at the date on the sampler by the style the mm-hmm. layout the whole bit well so how did, why did it change i know why it changed from band samplers to samplers that have a border and motifs inside because band samplers were considered to be like working samplers yeah. you you stitch the band and then you're going to put it on a piece of of household linen or the cuff of your shirt but none but also why did that shift why did band samplers go out of fashion because people still stitched on clothing and household goods so anyway I just find the whole thing so interesting, and I highly, highly recommend that your listeners take a minute to go and look at the Sampler Guild website, because they can download this article and read it for free, and it's super interesting. And and one of the asides, what happened was, and this was so serendipitous i had just finished charting a sampler i own and ferguson from 1829 which is a stunning sampler and when i bought it i didn't realize how stunning it was until it arrived at my doorstep and so i charted it i charted two-thirds of it for a special class i taught for my local ega chapter i didn't chart the top third because it was a verse and the sampler would be big. It's very big if you stitch it on 32 count linen. So I charted the bottom two thirds and I get done and I teach the class and not a month later out comes this article and right in the middle of the sampler I just finished charting is a Solomon's porch and I didn't know what it was. I said, I don't know what this is to my class. I don't know what this is. This is a building. But I don't understand quite what this balcony is about. I don't think it's a dovecote. I don't think it's a castle. It might be a folly. Well, eh, wrong. It was a Solomon's porch. But I didn't know that. Right. And I could have taught my students so much more if I'd known that. Yeah. So I just, I find this part of of sampler knowledge so, so interesting. And I wish... I would like it if we sort of had a consolidated place where we could share all this knowledge yeah. and the sampler guild starting by putting this article up. Yeah. It's interesting that you're going to take this class on text because. Well, uh, it's not a class, Gary. I need to correct you. It's the opposite. I set the research question. Oh, oh that's right. It's I your have research. to do the research. Yeah. And they guide me. Okay. And, I think part of the guidance is going to come from people who study the writing, old English writing, mm-hmm. which that's going to be a new experience to try to read some of that script. But anyway, go ahead yeah. with what we're going but, to say. What interests me about it is I'll be interested to see what you learn about how it ties to literacy in the general population. And yep. what reason that uh, triggered for me in, in my head is just, Yesterday, I think it was, um, I, I get this uh, daily uh, devotion thing from the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod Lutheran Church. Okay. And there, there was a piece, and I believe the guy's name was Wycliffe, who was the first one who translated the Bible from... Yes. Yes. And, and, and made it available to the general population, because uh, the, the Latin or the Greek was what it was in the Bible, and it was always chained to the altar or some portion of the church so you you know basically we'll tell you what it says you know? that's right yeah and then he made so he translated it and made it available and so that you know that's got to change the the culture absolutely and so yeah then, that was then that you know how does that thing. kind of how does that tie with now starting to see text and samplers and and that's so cool that you say that because one of my friends in the Sampler Guild kind of thought about that same in that same direction because on what prompted this was I bought two samplers, one from 1715 and one from 1721. And they both have on them alphabets that I can trace to a specific pattern book that was published in Germany. And it's clear that they have copied the ABCs out of that pattern book. Mm-hmm. But they also have their name and they have verses and the letters written, stitched in their name and the letters stitched in the verses are not the same shape or style, or oh. we would say font, as the letter in the alphabet. 
So where did they find that? Why did they do that? And one of my friends and I from the Sampler Guild, we thought maybe they looked at the verse in the Bible and the Bible was printed or, you know, in this font because there weren't unified fonts. And so they basically pixelated the printed word and put it on their sampler. Uh Or maybe they had their parent write it down, what they wanted to say. And their parent used a particular shape of letter, a particular script. And then again, they pixelated it, put it on the sampler, which certainly you could do. But it's so odd that the letters on these old samplers are not uniform. Mm -hmm. They're not. You see different A's. The one that particularly set me off was her name is martha fields her m or her a looked nothing like an a and her r looked like a t and (laughs) then i go back and i look i start to look at script and handbooks about how to do handwriting from the period and sure enough that was the way you made it and i'm thinking that looks nothing like how we write today and if you look back at any first account written things from that period, 1650 to 1750, it's really hard to read them because their their shape of their letters is very, very different from ours. Yeah. And so I'm thinking there must be a connection. So watch this space, right, Gary? <laughs> well, see, and that, you know, that makes samplers a window into cultural shifts. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah, I think they're, I think they're some of the most valuable artifacts we have that represent culture particularly from a woman's point of view but not exclusively because it reflects all the whole culture and it's hard to get a handle on some things about culture in the past and to understand what people were thinking what were they living like the last sampler i bought was finished in 1650 or 1660 and the little girl is eight years old That's the year that Charles II came back, and it's English, came back to the throne after his father, Charles I, had had his head cut off, the first and only monarch to have his head cut off in England. Oliver Cromwell came back, was in power. Then he died. He went out of power. Charles I's sons, Charles II, he came back into power the year this little girl stitched this sampler. Can you imagine what must have her family's life been like? Oh my God, Oliver Cromwell's gone. We have a king again. This is weird. How do we act? What do we do? Right, right. And that is so interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's where, like, like I said, that's to me that stuff is the meat of samplers. Yep. Yeah. And my other my other passion, and I'm going to put an appeal out to your listeners, although I know it's a long shot. Years ago, I bought from Whitney Antiques before Joy Jarrett died. She sold me a sampler that had come from Kettle's Yard, which is a museum in the UK. And on that sampler is a maze. And I looked up maze samplers because I'd never seen a sampler with a maze. And I found one example, which is owned by a man who runs an online magazine called i think it's called labyrinthus or labyrinthos and it's about labyrinths and mazes who knew there were people who studied labyrinths and mazes but there are and it's cool it's interesting and he owns another sampler with a maze and he had found a third one in a museum up in yorkshire and my sampler and his sampler and the one in the museum were all stitched in the town of dewsbury so i'm giving a lecture this was years ago, three or four years ago, and I'm talking about the maze sampler. And Lynn Anderson, who runs the sampler consortium here in the United States, she contacts me after the maze and sa- or after the lecture and says, "I have a sampler with a maze. Would you be interested in buying it?" Yes. <laughs> so yes. So we we were going out to visit my daughter in Northern California. We met in Portland, Oregon, and she's bringing me the sampler. And she doesn't have anything with her except a handbag. And she pulls out the sampler, and it's teeny. It's maybe 10 inches by 6 inches. And there at the bottom, in miniature, is the exact same sampler that's maze that's on my sampler and the one the labyrinth guy owns and the one in the museum. Wait, they all have – they're all exactly the same pathways? Exactly. Wow. And they're from a book that was published in 1783 – and it has the maze in it. It is exactly the same maze. Then this uh, person in the sampler guild finds another sampler with this exact same maze. 
So now we have five. That's not very many in the whole world. So if anybody, any of the listeners to this show know of a sampler that has a maze on it, please contact me at Kathy at theunbrokenthread.com. If you forget, go to my website. Gary has generously put it on um, the information on this show because I would really like to know if there are any more. And what we can't figure out, Gary, is the oldest sampler with the maze is one I own from 1740. The most recent is 18, I think it was 1806. That is a long time for a motif to last, but only on five samplers. So, so, that, what's the so that would suggest that was not just one teacher. Th- that is absolutely correct. Hmm. It would not be just one teacher. It couldn't even be mother-daughter, right? right? It's right. long a period. There is no pattern that we can find of a maze anywhere in any pattern book. All we can find is the drawing in this guy's garden book. <laughs> and so this is like, a mega mystery. And three of the samplers, maybe four, indicate that they were stitched at Miss Lee's, L-E-E-S, or Mrs. Lee's, or one person thinks Mrs. Lear's, L-E-A-R-S. That could be the lack of clear stitching. We're not sure. Sure. Her school in Dewsbury. But we can't find any record of that anywhere. Hmm doesn't exist because see that's that's the interesting part because that's the first question in my head all right who taught it who had this fascination with mazes why did they always do the same one why not more you know different variations yep and yeah and then the time span it can't be one person it can't like you said it can't be two people so it's got it there has to be something that kept it alive what what was that yeah isn't that weird? And the guy's name who wrote the book was Thomas Hill. And it was, uh, here it says this particular one was published in 1594. I'm looking online as we're talking. So 1594 publication of the book to first appearance on a sampler that we know about. That's also a really long time. Yeah. Was the book in the ladies' classroom? Uh, who knows? I It, it is one of the great mysteries that I am going to research. I am fascinated with this, but we need more examples if we can find them because then that will help us tie together all these disparate samplers, all of which are English so far. Everything we've found is English. And so far as we know, all but one are from the North part of England, Yorkshire area. Um, And the other one just doesn't have any indication of where it's from. So it could be from there, but like I said, if anybody knows of any samplers with mazes on them, Scarlet Letter had one, has one, and I've been notified about that. So if you're going to tell me about the one on the Scarlet Letter website, I know about that. But if you know any others, please tell me because I would love to write a paper about this. Why is it always the same maze? Huh. Yeah, why is it this maze? And yeah. actually, to be honest, it's not a maze. It's a labyrinth. Yeah, A labyrinth only has one way in and out. And but, but the has, pattern, the pattern is identical. See, you, you would think identical if, if it came from this guy who wrote a book that that there would be all kinds of variations. That's right, but no, it's the same one. Huh. I don't know why they chose this one. Yeah. And if people are interested in seeing it, go to my website. It's there. Um, you can buy the kit, but I'm not or the chart. But that's not why I'm telling you to go there. If you go and go to the sampler sh- chart shop, then you can see a picture of the maze on Mary Parsons thing so just go and look you can see the original and you can see the one that i stitched and it's super interesting and there's a little bit of history there if you're interested in that so it'll it's fun yeah it's that's, a mystery see, that is. yeah that's what makes it fun right there yeah yeah i yeah. think so too yeah well and that you know for people look at samplers oh that's just cross stitch yeah mm-hmm. but it's it's no no there's there's multiple levels that you can't get with really with it much of any other kind of stitching. You can with gold work, uh, where there's there's history, but you can't not like this where you have people oh, involved. Yeah, it's, and, it's a different kind of history. That's yeah, right. And yeah. yeah, I I just think they're fascinating. Yeah, I wish I had a million years left to study samples, <laughs> but I don't. 
<laughs> but I, I am really, uh, since I, I've done words for a living for 45 plus years now, I'm really intrigued to see what you learn about text and how, All right. how it tracks with, with like I said, with liter- literacy, but also as society advanced. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and how far down did it go in terms of social structure? That's right. Yeah. Isabel, Isabella Rosner, do you know who she is? Yeah. The, mm-hmm. Okay. In her, what's it called? Her podcast, she had, she interviewed a gentleman who wrote a book and now it's gone out of my head because you know it just does that. And it's about a man who collected, the book is a catalog of the collection of a man who collected things, I think it's between 15 and 1800, and he has one from every year. He has an item from every year. And the point is that every item he owns is dated and I believe either named or initialed. And one of the things I'm curious about when it comes, we're going back here to this, um, to the whole thing about letters and and literacy, is one of the things that happened between, well, at the late Middle Ages to the early modern period, is suddenly the idea of people being individuals, identifying as individuals first rather than part of a group first, Mm -hmm. that started to happen. That mind shift started to change. It wasn't that they didn't see themselves as individuals, but they identified themselves first as part of a group. As, yeah. as opposed to part of an individual. And so one of my the one of my ideas is that as they started to recognize and identify themselves as individuals, they started to name and date things they created. Here, this is I am here today, I made this, this is my name, I finished it in this year. And maybe that's why they started to name and date their samplers i don't know that but that's my thinking because they did it with other things as well and in this book and i i'll try to send it to you so you can put it in the show notes um that's what he postulates and i think that there there's something to that that that's why suddenly we get names and dates now why we also start getting texts and alphabets i think that goes to your point about literacy yeah. And so I think there's two reasons, but man, is it going to be interesting to learn about? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we're uh, actually doing a show with uh, Isabella Rosner. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. We're doing a show with her in the next week or so to talk about her efforts to digitize the RSN collection. Oh gosh, what a job! Oh yeah, no kidding. Yeah, but uh, uh, so that that's going to be one of the things I'll be curious about is is um, because you know, once once they get that digitized, I, I hope they're starting with the oldest stuff first. I don't know what they're doing, uh, but to be, then you can now start to line stuff up on a screen and see, compare. Yeah, yeah. that'll be super interesting. Yeah, that's right. And when it comes to samplers, one of the places I always like to look. And this is a museum that I don't know if people in America think about it. They think of the V and A. Um, but the Fitzwilliam Museum, which happens to be in Cambridge, has an incredible collection of samplers. And so that that's just another place where people can go and look if they want to see different kinds of samplers. The Fitzwilliam has a huge collection of them. You need, you need to buy a house in Cambridge, you know, just summer home kind of thing. Yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. But I do have a very good friend in Cambridge. Well, she lives just outside. And so I won't be staying with her, but I'll be visiting her. I okay. wouldn't. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Yeah. If only, if only, Gary. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We've had this come up more than once talking with designers. And that is they do a design because it's what's in their head. And then if they want to sell that design so stitchers can you know, buy it, do it themselves, they'll modify it to make it easier, reduce the number of colors, might take out a stitch that might be really challenging for a lot of people to make it more accessible. Do you, when you're designing, do you differentiate in your head uh, Design for art versus design for sale for teaching. 
Yeah, I do. Okay. Um, I at the beginning of my teaching embroidery teaching career, I really didn't, and part of that was because I was still relatively beginning embroiderer. I mean, not really, but you know, I've had a lot more experience in the last eight years than I had before that, obviously. Um, and when there's a there's a couple things. One of the things that constrains my designs is if I know I'm going to be submitting a proposal for a seminar of some sort, whether it's here or in Canada, and I've been lucky to teach in both countries for EAC in Canada and EGA in the United States, I know that the people who organize the seminars would prefer to have a class that's one or two days long, sometimes three very rarely four. And the reason for that is when somebody pays a lot of money, like we were talking about before, they want to get more than one class. So if I have a class that uses complex stitching or has is going to take a long time for me to get the students well on their way so they can finish the project at home successfully, that class is less likely to be chosen for the seminar. And I understand that. That's that's a financial decision. They want to have they need to have classes fill up so that they can afford to run the seminar and not, you know, end up in the red. That's a disaster for everybody. And I understand it from the participants' point of view. They want to do more than one class. They want to see more than one teacher do more than one technique. So I may do something in my design something in my head that's going to look fantastic, but it uses 10 different uh, surface stitches and it uses silk and I've got some passing thread and I'm going to use some chip work and then I'm going to construct it and I'm thinking that's never going to sell forget that don't do that and so then I change it whereas if I'm doing something for myself that's just for joy I can do whatever I want because I don't have that constraint yeah. and what's interesting is Gary this takes us full circle to the first thing we talked about. And this is the advantage of an online class. If I want to teach something, which I used to teach, uh, Trevelyan's, what was it called? Pocket and Trevelyan's Cap, both again from the Trevelyan Miscellany. Beautiful, beautiful miniature reproductions of a little tiny, what they would call a pocketbook. And it's about five inches long and about two and a half, three inches high, embroidered all over with gold work. And the same with the cap. Those could never work at a seminar. No mm. chance. They were, the, the cap was a year long course with a class every month. <laughs> but those are the exact kinds of classes that you can teach online. Yeah. Right. And yeah. the Cruel Work Company does something like that. They're doing that feller mirror right now with Kate Barlow. I am not stitching that because I have other things to do. But boy, I wish I could. Um, absolutely fabulous piece. So when you're designing for teaching, you also have to think of the constraints of where who's going to pick this up to let me teach it. If I'm going to teach it online, I can do whatever I want. Might not get many students, but might. But if I'm going to teach it in person, then I have to consider as an instructor, my responsibility to the students is to be able to get them far enough along in the project that when they go home, they can finish it. Because I know lots of people, me included, who go to a seminar, take a class, start the project, never finish it, right? Got a couple of those, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I kind of thought so. <laughs> Um, and then the flip side of that is when you're doing something strictly for yourself. And today is a very big day for me. I am getting cloth of silver, real cloth of silver Ooh. in the mail. Yeah, mm. that costs a pretty penny and it's going to be heavy. And I'm using it to create a cope. Do you know what a cope is? Yep. Okay. And it's going around a copper angel. And the angel already has a mantle. I did, um, exhibited it up in Canada in Bay St. Paul this last summer. And I decided I wanted to do more with it. So I'm going to make this cope and it's going to be quite contemporary. And as you know, I do different stuff that way than I do for teaching. And in that instance, I can do absolutely whatever I want. I think the challenge for teachers and students right now is we have so many thousands of highly accomplished stitchers out there. And although they like to do a project class, 
I am sensing a shift where people say, show me some techniques, help me experiment so I can go off on my own. And you and I have talked about this before. And I can't speak to the classes at EGA this fall because I haven't perused all of them, but I'm pretty sure there are a couple classes that are more open-ended. And I know in the EAC, Embroidery Association of Canada seminar this year, there are two classes that are very open-ended. And I'm sensing that we have a body of people who might be more interested in designers and teachers working on classes that allow students to learn a technique and also to learn how to play with, experiment, and apply those techniques in their own way. And that would be really exciting because then teachers can start to expand what they think about doing for seminars and their designs can be more, and their classes can be more open-ended, more challenging, and I dare say more interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd be curious to see what happens. Do you know who Hanny Newton is? Yes. Have you heard of her? And we've okay. actually done a show with her, yes. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. I knew that and I listened to it. And I took one of her classes, you know, taking gold thread for a walk or metal thread for a walk. And that kind of stuff is her kinds of things or like the experimental gold work that Tracy Franklin and Pippa Folds, they're doing that for the RSN actually this summer. They did it as a local class, but now they're doing it for the RSN. And I think it's about nine class. Those kinds of classes are becoming more popular. And I find that really, really exciting. Um, I still think there's a place for teachers to design kits for students who want to get something, you know, they like how it looks, they want to produce this item, they want it to be manageable, but that means you're going to restrict what you put into it. You have to, because that's not fair otherwise to the student. Um, But I think that because embroidery is definitely taking off as a hobby now, I mean, huge, big time, we have people who are getting so accomplished that they're going to be asking for more so we'll see what happens but i think it's a pretty exciting time to be a teacher right now yeah i mean there'll always be the vast majority will people be people who see a design want to execute it because they like you said they like the colors they like the design whatever and and the smaller portion is going to be the people who start to change colors or want to go beyond yeah or change um, stitches or whatever right yeah but but if there if there are now opportunities showing up to guide them that's significant step because otherwise they're pretty much on their own yeah and, and that's that's hard yeah yeah so, so. You know, but it's just it's it's interesting uh to me and, and has been every time it comes up for designers who basically do what they want and then have to simplify to have any chance of selling the design and not not as as an insult, not a dumbing down or anything. It's just a business reality that yeah. that it has to be adjusted. But then you know, for for me, it's I'll give you five more bucks if you'll give me that sheet that makes the suggestions of the stuff you took out. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the other thing that happens to all of us, I designed what I thought was absolutely fabulous. A uh, set of three things: a shaker box, a needle book, and a little pin cushion. And I've submitted that, and it's never been picked up to be taught, ever. And for some reason, people just say, nope, that's not it. So I'm going to offer it as an online course Mm -hmm. and see if anybody is interested. But that's the other thing as a designer. When you design a project, you have no way of knowing if the committee is going to choose it or not. So you can put in all this time and energy, and by time, stitching time and energy time, designing colors, threads, the whole bit. And then nobody picks it up ever, yeah. and that's just that's just life, you know. Yeah. That's just how it goes. So, well, it, by mean, the way, that's, I, that's the case for any artist, musician, painter, that's right. whatever. They never know. It, no, it's you like, don't. oh, look at look what I created. Yeah, that's nice, but this thing over here is really cool. <laughs> it, that really, that's yeah. a throwaway. Yeah, because you never know. Yeah, you never know what they're gonna like. That's right. right. By the way, I'm just gonna interject, even though it's out of order. The book is called Marking Time, Objects, People, and Their Lives, 1500 to 1800, by Edward Town. Okay. 
So you can, I'll, I'll send that to you in an email so you can put it under the show notes if you want. Yep, but fascinating, fascinating book. And it, thanks to Isabella Rosner for her interview with this guy. I never would have stumbled on it myself. So. Yep. All right. We need to stop. Yeah, rats. Yep. That's it. I always love talking to you, Gary. It makes my hour go by so fast. <laughs> Same here. Always fun. All right. So Kathy's class, uh, sign up at egausa.org. And uh, you have until March 6th to register for that. Uh, right. So get in on that. Uh, TheUnbrokenThread.com is Kathy's website for all the things she talked about to gape at and look at and learn from. Um, <laughs> and Instagram and, and Facebook, too. But, uh, yeah. Yep, all those. Yeah. And don't forget to contact me if you know about a maze sampler. Yes. <laughs> we'll of any see. kind. Yes. <laughs> all all right. right. Kathy, thanks. Always a treat. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks to everyone for listening.